half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storer. I'm Ian Gibbs. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun is set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for joining us. It's Tuesday, March 21st. This is episode five, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing great, Brent. How are you? I am good, thank you. You are, uh, you're back from vacation. I am, yeah. We were in Vegas the last four days. Oh, that sounds exciting. <laughs> it was certainly an experience. <laughs> yeah, I, there was a, a very particularly unique experience relevant to our show that you had. At uh, the Grand Canyon. Yes. Yeah, that was that was weird. It was surreal and weird. We were there, uh, we we toured around Route 66, all those good things, and then we headed for the Grand Canyon around 3.30. We were there, and our guide was talking, and then we heard a lot of sirens. And as we came around the corner, mere minutes later, we discovered that a young man had fallen into the canyon. He fell about 190 feet. So those people were not really there for a rescue mission. It was more of a recovery mission. And I just read um, in the news today that he didn't get picked up till the next day because it was too late in the day to get the people in there. I guess at that point they thought we're not really in any hurry. Well, no, and they're not going to put themselves in danger. And it gets it gets really dark really fast there. So they just, yeah, they left him there overnight. That's rough. Yeah. But on the bright side, you got to see uh, the process of a ghost being made. Well, it's kind is... of like, how did this get made? <laughs> but for ghosts. <laughs> How well, do they do that? There was a book, a book in the bookstore, and uh, Mark goes, any ghost books? I'm like, no, but I found this one, and it's fantastic. And it was called Death in the Canyon. Oh. and um, Terminal it, Velocity in You. <laughs> it recounted the falls, the river accidents. Uh, in 1956, two commercial airliners crashed into each other over the canyon in the really? fog. Yes, and there, there's still piece, pieces of the plane in the canyon, and presumably body parts, that they've never been able to recover from 1956. Sweet zombie Jesus. I had so, no idea. I know. So that book was definitely on my wish list. But as we didn't take any check luggage, and I knew I'd have to lug this beast back with me, I decided not to get it. I, I'll order it or something. That's fair. You don't check luggage? No, I hate checking luggage. Interesting. No, I, I never, ever, ever. I am so used to, previously, you know, I used to hitchhike and I used to backpack. Right. So I, I was so accustomed to having to put all my crap in the, the smallest possible space, you know, packed so yeah. tightly it it forms a singularity and <laughs> collapses into a black hole. Yeah, oh, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That now, whenever I travel anywhere, because I have a little bit of money, right. I bring a and steamer trunk <laughs> full of all my stuff. Like, well, what, what if I need these antique crampons, you know? I, <laughs> well, with our credit card, we even get a free piece of check luggage, and I just won't know. We went to England for three weeks. We didn't check any luggage. We had to on the way back because right. we bought shit. But on the way there, no. And I even have a stupid CPAP machine I have to lug, and it takes up three quarters of the case, but I just don't care. I hate checking luggage. So they let you take the CPAP machine in ch your check baggage? Oh, yeah. In fact, you should. Because, really? well, they're like $2,000. And what are you going to do if you get there and it's not there or it's in pieces? Oh, God, I hadn't even thought about yeah. that. It's, uh, apparently, it's okay because it's medical equipment. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I See, now that's – so you're one of these assholes who, when I'm trying to get on a plane, have their entire – amplifier sized bag they're trying to put into the overhead thing, trying to defy the laws of physics as they rotate it to fit in there. Well, no, because I hate you. I don't take just the so full you know. size bag that you can. Okay. So 
you. Because so. <laughs> I hate those people too, where they're like wailing on the yeah, overhead yeah, yeah, yeah. bin and you're like, that's going to come down. Yeah, the, the fundamental shape of your luggage has been determined. It, yeah. it is not a it is not a nebulous future concept. No. It is not unformed. It's, no. it's, it's, it's definite and it's not going to fit. No, I have one size down from the maximum you can take. Okay. And then the other bag I take is just a black monochromic co-op. Uh, so it's our fifth episode, and of course, it's a it's a very special one. We have our very first guest. I know the poor bastard. Uh, he he bore up really well. He Excellent. was a, he was a great guy, very patient. Of course, I've been interviewed a number of times uh, for my book, so I, I've been on the the you know I've been the interview interviewee. I right. have never been the interviewer. Yeah, and I'm glad you did it because that's really daunting for me. I haven't done that many interviews yet because my book doesn't come out until next month. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to learn. So he was he was very very patient, very kind, Good. and uh, of course that's Matt Swain, author of Ghost of Country Music, Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters. That's coming up after the break, and following that, we're gonna have a little chat about Ian's country music album. <laughs> yeah, and Brennan's pension for public shaming (laughs) all right we'll be right back It's a very special night for us here at the Ghost Story Guys. We're going to be welcoming our very first guest. He's the author of Ghosts of Rock and Roll, America's Haunted Universities, and of course, the brand new book, Ghosts of Country Music, Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters, Matt Swain. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys, Matt. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. It's it's an honor to be here. So before we get into the book, I just want to talk a little bit about you and your background. Well, I guess... uh... I, I feel like I, I don't have a, a super interesting background, but I guess the, the key point is that I was born on Halloween. That sort of got me interested in paranormal, the supernatural, folklore, ghost lore, horror movies, and all, all of the same. I think when you're born on Halloween, you kind of learn to embrace your weirdness at a very young age. And I read a lot about it, but I never really wrote about it until I started working as a journalist at a at a local newspaper. Uh, I'm from Tyrone, Pennsylvania. I got a job as a reporter there. Every Halloween that came around, you know, my editor was always pressing me because I was a Halloween baby to, to come up with a decent feature story. So one time I decided I would write about local ghost legends and ghost lore and ghost stories. I think I got hooked at that point because I found it so interesting personally, as well as the audience, the readers really liked it. And I remember people coming off the street and telling me their ghost stories. So I started collecting stories and and I'm much more uh, 
I approach this material mainly as a, as a journalist uh, rather than a ghost hunter or a paranormal investigator, although I'm currently a, a research writer at Penn State, and I approach both fairly similarly. I approach uh, the material with respect, but I want to try to find compelling, interesting pieces of it that I think the general audience, people that might not be a ghost hunter or might just be peripherally interested in the paranormal would find interesting and compelling. Most of my life, I've been either a reporter or a journalist in public relations and marketing. You know, currently for about seven years, I've been a science and research information officer for Penn State. And I find that really interesting. And I, I was really curious because being that you are a science writer that write about tech and, and futurism, I was curious to know whether there is a conflict between those two pursuits for you, the paranormal and science. Do you have a difficult time reconciling those two things? Do you ever find a sort of a cognitive dissonance when you finish writing about one and then you start writing about the other? Yes, all the time. All the time. But really, I find that the dissonance really evolves from people's perceptions of science. And the way I try to explain it to myself is science is really just a algorithm for discovery. It's really a way of finding out when you're wrong and when you're right and moving towards the truth. So I honestly try to, when I talk to my researchers at Penn State, I doubt what are the findings. And when I talk to uh, paranormal researchers or ghost hunters for these books or people that just experienced this, you know, they haven't used the scientific method in their experience. But but what I find is that the knowledge that they gained is is just as important uh, as, you know, a scientist would. And honestly, some of the paranormal researchers that I talk to are very earnest in trying to discover the truth. Uh, sometimes they have approached because something outside of the norm has uh, happened to them and they want to try to understand it. And so they, you know, I, I respect that journey just as much as I respect uh, science. I don't think science is the only way to find things out. I think it's a really effective way to find things out, but not the only way. Moving on to your book, I'm really curious to know how it is you came to be writing about the ghosts of country music. Are you a country music fan? It really goes back to when I started writing about local ghost legends for the newspaper article. I discovered there were a lot of ghost stories at universities, and I started writing about that, and I got a book contract. I also spent about five or six years as a disc jockey. So when the acquisitions editor said, do you have anything you might want to follow up this book with, I just sort of blurted out haunted rock and roll. And I had a few stories to go on. I also read a good deal about Gary Patterson. I read several of his books. Uh, he wrote Take a Walk on the Dark Side, which is a great book about kind of the occult supernatural aspects of, of rock and roll. So I knew that there was some things there. And of course, I knew about the Crossroads legends. So I, I just started pursuing it and I found tons of material. I mean, I had more than enough for, for one book and I'm still finding more. Through that journey, I was also finding stories that pertain to country, to Johnny Cash, to Pat. Klein. So I also was collecting that. The short answer, though, is that I've always been a real fan of classic country music. I was a DJ for probably about two years on a country radio station. So I haven't followed too much of the new acts, but uh, as far as, you know, Johnny Cash, uh, I love Hank Williams, all of those guys and and ladies. I haven't done this intentionally, but now that I look back at it, I, I think what I do is I take my natural interests and then I try to find, you know, kind of a supernatural angle to it. Do you feel there is something particular to music that lends itself to, to 
manifestations of the paranormal, some kind of undiscovered energy that, that connects people to something greater when they when they create? Or, or do you feel if we focus on any one subject long enough, we'll find these kinds of stories there? I mean, I completely uh, think that there is something special about music in general. If I can back it up again, when I finished uh, Haunted Rock and Roll, and again, I, I approached this really as something for the general reader, the general audience. I want to make it interesting and compelling. I don't want to get too eggheaded and academic right. about it, but I am at heart, I think, an academic egghead just without the PhD. But I really found myself analyzing these stories that I that I read and the people and that I wrote about and, and the people that were involved. And I came to the conclusion after that book that there was something special about rock and roll. There, there was just something that creates this uh, connection with the supernatural between the artists and the fans. And I didn't think much more about it than that, except when I started to write the country music book, I started to find an equal amount of ghost stories about country as I did rock and roll. And those genres are similar in that way. And now what I believe is that that music itself helps people transcend. We could probably talk forever whether that transcension is just a, a kind of a mental thing or whether there is something that can lift us into, you know, if you think about music and about how we describe it, we talk about, oh, it lifted our spirit. That song really, you know, got me going or I feel a connection with these artists. I mean, those, I feel that way myself. And I think when you have music, you have the possibility of raising your consciousness. And if you want to go that far, maybe that gets you in a place where you're open to supernatural experiences. Uh, maybe that gets you in a place where you might even promote those types of supernatural experiences with the people and the artists that were involved in it. The other thing that I notice is that every religion uses music as part of its worship. So you can go back to Bach fugues and, and hymns and drumming and chanting. It's all part of the religious aspect. So there, to me, is really something special about music that makes us more likely to experience the supernatural or at least be open to it. You know, artists seem to connect to the supernatural and aren't afraid to say that they are connecting to it. You know, Loretta Lynn is very open about her experiences with the supernatural and unexplained. Johnny Cash was very open to it. So I, that's the reason why I think there's so many of these ghost stories. So you, you mentioned Johnny Cash there. And of course, in the book, you've got stories about Johnny Cash and, and Hank Williams, who are, and Loretta Lynn, who of course are, are very well known. But I noticed you also mm -hmm. had uh, stories about artists who at least I'm not as familiar with, uh, for example, like Merle Kilgore. Yeah. And you have a great story in there about Kilgore getting a, a message from his friend Johnny Horton after his death. Would you mind telling us that story? I would not mind at all. I am usually right not because I know so much, but because I want to know so much. And so I certainly was not a Johnny Cash scholar or biographer by any stretch. I liked his work. I admire him, uh, you know, and I know I've read quite a bit about him, but I, I wasn't an expert. So what kind of came as a shock to me was that Johnny Cash, Merle Kilgore, and Johnny Horton were all very, very interested in the supernatural. I would consider them probably spiritualists. And, you know, spiritualism is that spiritual belief from probably the, the 1800s that you you can actually connect with ghosts and, and spirits and people who have moved on. And those three, and I'm not really sure how it happened, but 
apparently Merle Kilgore or Johnny Horton, maybe it was, got connected with a medium named J. Bernard Ricks. J. Bernard Ricks is just one of these fascinating characters that I, I had no idea existed, but he sort of served as this spiritual guide for Johnny Cash, Merle Kilgore, and, and Johnny Horton. All of those three, by the way, were friends, and I think this all happened during the Louisiana Hayride radio show that they were on quite a bit. J. Bernard Ricks enters these folks' lives, and there are stories how he and, and Merle Kilgore was mainly a songwriter. I think he co-wrote Ring of Fire with June Carter Cash for Johnny. But there are stories about J. Bernard Ricks calling up Merle Kilgore's wife at night and saying, you need to check your baby. And she said, well, that's ridiculous. I just put my baby down. Uh, he said, no, please do. Uh, she went and sure enough, the, the baby was uh, turning blue and had apparently almost suffocated. So there are all these stories about J. Bernard Ricks being able to act as a medium for those three. But what happens is tragically, Johnny Horton dies in a car crash. And there's, trust me, there are tons of stories leading up to that of uh, J. Bernard Ricks and Johnny Horton basically predicting that that he wasn't going to be around very long. But in any event, Johnny Horton dies in a, in a crash and Johnny Cash took it very hard because prior to the accident, apparently Johnny Horton had reached out to Johnny Cash and called him collect and Cash refused the charges for whatever reason. But he was feeling a lot of guilt about this. And Johnny Cash and Merle Kilgore went to the funeral. And before the funeral, Johnny Cash was upset and was talking to Merle about how he thought that Johnny Horton would be in a in a better place. And though that it was foggy and cloudy where he was, where Johnny Cash was, he believed that it would be bright as day where Johnny Horton was on that at that time. So the two went into the service and they noticed Jay Bernard Ricks was there and Johnny Cash was intently uh, looking over at Mr. Ricks, who was uh, scribbling in his notebook. And that apparently was how he would process these messages. He wasn't being disrespectful. After the service, Johnny Cash went immediately up to J. Bernard Ricks and asked him to see the, the notebook. When he did, he saw some symbols that seemed to represent Johnny Horton. And then there was this message, bright as this day, which is almost verbatim what Johnny Cash had said to only Merle Kilgore before the services. And Johnny Cash really felt that that was a message from Johnny Horton and that somehow he, he was forgiven for his cheapness and not, not taking that call. Right. And that, that must have been a, an incredible weight. Right. And remember that Johnny Cash always carried an amount of guilt for his brother dying uh, in that uh, accident in the, the sawmill. So he was distraught. Johnny Cash has, as a reporter, I would tell you that it, it's probably the most credible one. First of all, Johnny Cash, call him what you will, but he was an honest guy, maybe to his own detriment at times. But the story that, that really struck me was that uh, and it came from either his biography or his autobiography. But he had a vacation home in Jamaica called Cinnamon Hill. And uh, the place was rumored to be haunted before he got there. But Johnny Cash, I would consider him really a pioneer in ghost hunting, too, because throughout these accounts, he, he tries to debunk things, which is pretty fascinating for me. In this case, he invited a few people down to his vacation home. I think there were six and they were having a dinner party one evening, and all six of them were in this room, uh, in the dining room, and they saw a woman in a white dress 
enter through the closed doors on the one side of the room, walk right by them, and then disappear through another set of doors on the other side of the room. And then they heard this knocking, like this repetitive pounding after that happened. So, I mean, as a reporter, you have, you know, six people there. You have Johnny Cash, a very credible witness. And then you have this event, which is very hard to explain in any other terms besides a mass hallucination. So I think that's one of the fascinating things. But beyond just the ghost stories that Johnny Cash saw and then actually became part of, because now they actually say that uh, Johnny Cash haunts that Cinnamon Hill, but also he he had some supernatural powers of his own. Apparently, he was meditating one time, and he cracked the ceiling of uh, Merle Kilgore's new studio. That's uh, oh, one of the more impressive ones, and I'm sure Merle wasn't very happy about that. No, I I, I can't imagine having musicians for friends is easy, and yeah. per- particularly when they're blowing holes in things with their minds. Yeah, they're usually you know smashing windows or throwing television sets out the. Uh, hotel windows. So right. And at least those things Johnny you, you can understand. Different. You know, you, you're familiar right. with that. Oh, it's just another television. But this is <laughs> this this is the the ceiling with your mind. Johnny, we can't process this. <laughs> right. In the chapter on Patsy Klein, you talk about an inn which seemingly has no connection to her, but uh, claims visitation by her ghost. And and this in, in in some ways refers back to what we were just or what you were just talking about in regard to being a journalist and looking at things objectively. But do you often encounter situations like this in where people experience paranormal activity and attribute it to someone famous, regardless of whether or not the person is demonstrably connected to that site? And, and do you ever find that it it makes determining the true story of a place more difficult? Yes. In fact, I find it very difficult to determine who is actually behind the haunting. For instance, at Tootsie's, which is this iconic country and Western bar right near the the Ryman Auditorium that Hank used to hang out at. Hank, like he's my friend. Hank Williams, <laughs> uh, Patsy, Patsy Klein, and, and the rest used to hang out. And there's this story that uh, when a band plays that's really knocking them out that night, there will be a ghost that will appear at the end of the bar. And a lot of people say it's Patsy Klein, but of course, a lot of people say that it's the owner of the bar, um, uh, Tootsie Bess. So, uh, you know, that's very difficult. And let me tell you what, the hardest one to write, uh, chapter to write, was the one about Elvis Presley because – Oh, I can't imagine. It, yeah, his – there are just so many layers to the lore that surrounds that guy. Uh, first of all, and I'll just use – one ghost story that I had in Haunted Rock and Roll, and I, I don't know whether I added it to country music. He he was a tweener for me. He was he actually started out more of a country singer, and so the country folks love him too and accept him as his own in rock and roll. Of course, he's the king of rock and roll. So I have him in both both books. But the one that stood out for me was that right after he died, there was a sighting, and maybe I think there was a, a photograph of someone in a pool house in on the Graceland grounds who looked exactly like Elvis Presley. And so there was one camp that said, well, that was Elvis. He's alive. There was another camp that said, oh, Elvis's friends dressed up like him, wore the same sunglasses, had the same haircut. So it was probably one of those members of the Memphis Mafia. Then there's this other side that says, no, that's his ghost. And that he haunts it. And then there's – f- furthermore, there's another one that says, well, you have all these 
uh, Elvis impersonators. And perhaps that's just an Elvis impersonator who got invited into the pole house and was sitting there. So the Elvis hauntings seem to be most like that, where there are several layers to it. And you never know really who's haunting what. Or or for what reason. I know personally right. one one issue I have with, with a lot of ghost research out there is I think, and this is something that my co-host Ian and I disagree with, or pardon me, disagree on, is I, I tend to wonder if the manifestations in a particular location are not tied to that location at all necessarily. And I, sometimes I wonder if we're, we're too hung up on the, the age old theory that, well, something happened here, therefore this, this thing is attached to that. Do you ever, do you have a, a thought on that? I, I do. I, I mean, and, and when I, I don't consider myself a, an expert on, you know, the paranormal per se, but I try to get as many theories out there as possible because I'm, 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 I consider myself a skeptic in the truest sense of the word is that I really don't know. I haven't been ultimately convinced on either side. I don't think I will because I, I'm too much of a devil's advocate, but I am starting to lean more towards that these actual supernatural encounters probably have more to do with the person and the person's consciousness than it does the the physical area or place. And some of that is based on, you know, my reading of philosophy of Jung and synchronicity and archetypes and things like that. But also for me, I've never investigated any of these places, but I've gone to a place that I, I never wrote about in either book, but I, I really wish I could have. I, I could never find any first-person accounts or even good ghost lore about Sun Records in Memphis where Elvis started and the, and the rest of those guys did. Because when I was in there uh, and I was on a tour – they led me to place and me and my friends to the place where there was a microphone and, and they started playing. Uh, I walked the line and they, the guide announces Johnny Cash was right here in this spot when this song was being recorded. And I'll tell you, I, I felt the presence of, you know, Elvis and those guys. I really did. I mean, if he would have walked up to me, I wouldn't have batted an eyelash. And so that's what my philosophy is starting to to gel around is this idea that it's connected with the person rather than the place. So there's one chapter in particular I, I really appreciated, uh, and that was one on Mindy McCready. 10,000 mm -hmm. Angels came out when I was a kid. Uh, I was a teenager, I guess. And, and I saw the video for guys do it all the time. And I, I had a real crush on her. Now I, I knew she f had fallen out of the spotlight. It was kind of hard to, hard to avoid, but I didn't realize how far she'd fallen or that her life had such a persistent paranormal element. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, yeah, and Mindy McCready was one of the more, I guess, one of the more modern country artists that I, I look at in this book because a lot of them do happen to be those classic artists, you know, the Johnny Cashes, the Roy A. Cuffs, Patsy Cline. But Mindy stuck out at me because she had several paranormal encounters, and uh, one of them, and, and they all seem to be very highly symbolic for her. The one she talked, I think, about on a television show. And essentially what happened, she was on tour in Scotland. And during that uh, tour, she stayed in what I guess was, a, she didn't know it, but was a, a haunted hotel that I think was at one time a monastery or a, a convent. That just seems like you're asking and, for trouble at that point. Yeah, right. It, it, but she wasn't aware of that. But throughout the night, the windows, uh, she closed the windows because it was Scotland and of course it was raining and the windows opened by themselves. She closed them. They opened again. Then she was walking around and she tripped over a piece of luggage, but she realized that the luggage 
she had was downstairs that somehow this piece of luggage ended up you know at her at her feet and inside was what she said was a diary uh, her boyfriend's diary where he kind of admits to some indiscretions so that changed her life then later on and and she really had uh it's a sad story because uh she was such a talent as you as you mentioned and to see her get involved with drugs and i think meeting the wrong guys and and some some tragedy but she really ended up kind of in a bad place and uh one of her relationships ended in a suicide and apparently Mindy also felt that she ex- still was connected to him and that she even had premonitions about, about this happening. And then later she took her own life pretty much at the same spot. But, you know, she I, I put her in the book mainly because she's a lot like some of these other country artists who seem to have a natural affinity to the supernatural, have had unexplained events happen in their lives, and also draw meaning from it. In this case, you know, she had this ghostly experience and it, and it changed her life. So that's the reason I had her in the book. I thought it was particularly eerie that one of the last movies she and her boyfriend watched together was What Dreams May Come, which is, of course, about two dead lovers trying to find one another in the afterlife. Right. And and one of those commits suicide. And, of course. Right. I forgot uh, yeah, the, the whole karmic overload on that. So yeah, that was interesting part too. In doing a little bit of research prior to the interview, I, I discovered that she was only 18 when Guys Do It All the Time came out. I was shocked by that. Right. And, and it's, right. I guess and, it's small wonder that, that you know, she went off the rails the way she did when anyone is given at that age that much license and, and that much, you know, essentially money, which is gasoline for the trouble machine. It, it's not yeah, surprising. it's and and also I think she really started her career when she was much younger at fifteen or sixteen, I believe. Yikes. That's when she got interested in and started going that. It reminds me of my haunted rock and roll when I write about Robert Johnson about the the deal with the devil. You, you know, you you sort of do this deal with the devil where you get fame and fortune, but you get a lot of baggage that comes along with it. And she sure did. Moving on from ghosts to haunted honky-tonks, uh, you have some great stories from Bobby Mackey's music world in Wilder, Kentucky. Can you tell us a little bit about its haunted history? Sure. Uh, and, you know, the, Bobby Mackey's fascinates me because one of the documentation, it's probably the most documented haunting that's in the book. And the documentation goes back years and years. And some of the people have signed affidavits and Bobby Mackey himself has been very willing to have ghost hunters come in and guides. And I, I actually talked to one of the guides for this book to give me her side of things. And the other thing that fascinated me is because writing Haunted Rock and Roll, I found some similarities, but I found some differences too. And the main difference is that rock and roll has – the ghost stories have much more of an edge. Aleister Crowley is haunting places and Black Sabbath is having experiences and all, you know, darker elements. And in country, it's a much more traditional kind of ghost story where you have a person who dies who has a spirit and the spirit remains in a place and people see it. That's a traditional kind of ghost story. And most of the stories in, in Ghosts of Country Music reflects that. However, Bobby Mackey's is really as close to rock and roll as a ghost story gets. And 
some of the haunted history there is one of the stories, which turns out is probably more ghost lore than than factual. But the story is that two men took a woman and killed her uh, in that building and then decapitated her and threw the head down this this hole. Then somehow that morphed into another legend that they were there for a ritual, a satanic ritual, and that they were trying to open up a portal to to hell there. What I found is that the, the one story is sort of true, but there's no indication it was any type of satanic uh, ritual, and it doesn't sound like it was even on the premises. It sounded like it was uh, closer to the stream nearby. However, since then, when Bobby Mackey took it over, he's experienced stuff. And, and the, the range of paranormal phenomena and unexplained there range from apparitions to one worker claims to be possessed. There was an actual exorcism on the grounds or in, on the premises. One, uh, the, uh, Bobby Mackey's wife was pushed down stairs. People were attacked. A cop went to the bar after uh, there was a burglar alarm that went off. And when he got there, he claims to have heard the jukebox playing a song. And when he went in to investigate, not only did the jukebox immediately cut out, but the jukebox wasn't even plugged in. And I don't even think the song that was playing was part of the selections. Yikes. So it, it, it just happens to be one of the you know most documented hauntings in the book. The one the guide that I talked to didn't feel that the phenomena was demonic or even malicious. Um, she said that she has been uh, maybe not her personally, but she has known people that have had things thrown at them, but she didn't consider it malicious. It was almost an act of trying to get someone's attention. I know of better ways than throwing a stone at me, but her claim is that it's she doesn't believe that it's demonic. So it's it, it was it was just fascinating to get all that information and try to uh, put it in a kind of a coherent chapter. And it it comes out really really well. I, I certainly I've I've only spent a very limited amount of time in Kentucky, but it made me want to uh, to go check out Bobby Mackey's Music World. Though right? I, yeah. I don't know if I'm I'm tough enough for a, a honky tonk. We'll we'll have to find out. I'm definitely not uh, <laughs> either to probably their regular customers or their supernatural customers. I don't think I can hang with any of them. I'll I'll be in the subway. I guess uh, you're welcome yeah. to join me if you like. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Ghosts of Country Music, Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters by Matt Swain. Matt, thank you so much for uh, for being with me here today. I wanted to say thank you very much. I had a great time. It's been a great chat. Oh, me, me too. And uh, where can our listeners find you? Uh, I do have a UR, I do have a website, mattswain.com, and it's S-W-A-Y-N-E.com. And you can also get me on Twitter. I'm at uh, – on Facebook, I'm at Matt Swain Writer. And Twitter is Matt Swain Books. Everything Matt Swain. I feel pretty egotistical at this point. <laughs> well, you've earned it, so I think we'll we'll let it roll. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again, Matt. Have a great day. Thank you.
And we're back. That was our very first interview with Matt Swain. Thank you, Matt. You were a great guest. You put up with my crap. <laughs> and uh, he was a really fascinating guy. I, I had no idea there were so many of these stories associated with people like like Johnny Cash and Patsy Cline. Yeah, no, and I actually have a kind of a weird story about Patsy Cline in really? a way. Yeah. A number of years ago, back in my country music career days, I also would do vacation Bible school all over Southern Alberta. And we were in concert Alberta which is the home of Katie Lang. And what a lot of people don't know is Katie Lang originally believed and dressed and even got named her backup band with the understanding that she was the reincarnation of Patsy Cline. Really? Yeah, so it was Katie Lang and the Reclines. They used to play Red Deer like all the time. Yeah. So I'm up in Concert, Alberta, home of Katie Lang. It said that on the sign. And the lady I was staying with, an old retired farmer's wife, and uh, said to me, would, would you like to come with me to meet Mrs. Lang? And I did not connect Katie Lang with visiting this old lady's friend. But I said, sure. And uh, we go up and we get to this house. It's a 1940s house, quite small. And then on the back end of it is the largest addition I have ever seen in my whole entire life, which did not make any sense. We go in, we're sitting in the kitchen, me and Mrs. Headley and Mrs. Lang are sitting there having coffee. And then this door opens off the kitchen and this guy, I thought, kind of <laughs> shuffles up the steps and reaches over the table, says hi to Mrs. Mrs. Headley, who I was staying with, hi to her mom. And then she reaches over to me and says, hi, I'm Katie. And then I kind of like, Katie Lang, looks like a guy. Oh my God. And she just sat down and started talking with us. And, and she was so cool. She goes back to concert for, for a month every year and she just walks the flats and that's when she writes songs. Her mom didn't want to move. She wanted to build her mom a house and her mom didn't want to move. Uh, but uh, Katie wanted room for other stuff. So she bought the house behind her mother, flattened it and built this giant addition, essentially sticking it to the original house. And uh, she was really cool. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to ask her because I'm never going to get this chance again. And so while we were there, there had been some controversy about her because she had spoken out against eating meat and this is cattle country, oil country. And so there'd been some blowback for her on what people considered was proper for someone from that town. And they'd written some kind of nasty things about her on the sign for the town. And I said to her, do you feel like because you're from here, you feel bad? Like you maybe, you know, you're hurting these people or you owe them something or something. And she said, no, no way. She goes, these people who live here could not wait to get rid of me. They teased me. They made fun of me. I was different. I was a freak. And they couldn't have been more pleased when I went off to Red Deer to start my music career. She said, I owe these people nothing. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, fair. Absolutely fair. Yeah, no kidding. And, and, and I didn't really think about putting it through her own personal experience. And once I did that, it was like, yeah, that makes sense. So she, she was super cool, really relaxed, easygoing, like just a regular cool person. So that is my one big brush with country music fame. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a story I heard rather read in the newspaper when I was in El Paso, Texas. Right. It was back in back in 08 and the Mars Volta. Are you familiar with them? No. Oh, of course not. Because oh, <laughs> I'm so old and then it, it gets it would angry up your blood. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, your aged blood. <laughs> but uh so the Mars Volta they're a progressive rock group. They were they're from El Paso. Right. But they were coming back through and there was an interview in the local paper with I think it's Cedric, the one of the one of the main guys. And they said, oh, are you excited to be coming back to El Paso? And I don't think you could any more clearly say, I hated growing up here. I hate this place. Yeah. And the only reason I'm coming back is to play music and make money. Right. Without actually just right. coming out yeah. and saying it or whipping out your dick and waving it at the photographer. <laughs> okay. 
back it off. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it, he was so clearly uninterested in, in this place and just trying to say, like, no, I, I had a really miserable upbringing here. And I think that's pretty common. Like, people leave for a reason, right? If you're super happy, you're not going to be desperate to get the hell out of town. And, and for a lot of these people, they do not fit in there. No, that's it. I mean, and that's why they become successful. If I grew up in, you know, Concertina, Alberta, whatever the hell it's called. Consort. Sure. Con- <laughs> consort? Consort. Interesting. <laughs> I'd love to know the genesis of that. But I know that I would be on the, the first bus out of there. It's not a great town. Right. I mean, I would leave too. But apparently, Katie didn't make things all that easy on herself. She would go to school in like a majorette uniform and, and weird stuff like that, which does not oh. generally happen in small town Alberta. I mean, to past a certain point, you're, you're inviting criticism at least. Not saying you deserve it, but, you know, if, if I turn up to school in my, uh, my frilly pink tutu. <laughs> Which I'm sure you probably did. Well, I was very, very pretty. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, you're going. You have to expect a certain amount of uh, reaction. I'm, again, I'm not. I'm not saying that you deserve it. I'm I, just saying you. You yeah. have to be aware there's going to be a your reaction. So if I like, if I went in my majorette's outfit, which I, I mean, I, I'm legally, I'm legally not allowed to do anymore thanks to that court order. Or go near schoolyards. Yeah. No, I understand that. Two hundred um, meters is pretty close. <laughs> it's a it's a long way. But no, I think with with her, she. Like I said, she believed she was the reincarnation of Patsy Cline. And so for her, in her mind, that came with responsibility. And that responsibility, I guess, included wearing whatever the hell you wanted to. But well, she she became Katie Lang and they yeah. didn't. So, no. you know, kudos yeah. to her for that. Yeah. And I, I have to say, her rendition of Hallelujah at the Winter Olympics opening. That was. That was unfair. That was well, great. That was Absolutely. Amazing. So, yeah. You know, it, Hallelujah is one of those songs I didn't realize was as popular as it is for things like covers. Oh, yeah. I, I had no idea. Then I was in England back in, uh, you know, years ago with Nikki, and I noticed on some pop star, either or whatever right. their version of that show yeah. is, every third breathy torch singer <laughs> was doing a rendition of Hallelujah, and I thought, Jesus, when did Leonard Cohen become so popular <laughs> over here? But apparently, yeah, I, it's, it's this... Very, very popular cover song. Well, the thing about it is, as a singer, it's an amazing song to do. It requires quite a substantial range. It's a lot of fun to sing. It's a bit like uh, Oh Holy Night. Okay, if you can, if you can hit Oh Holy Night, it's a Christmas song. If you can hit that one and you can sing it, you're obviously got some chops. Interesting, hard song to do. So Hallelujah is a difficult song to sing. Now, isn't Cohen generally regarded as having kind of an awful voice? Uh, yeah, yeah, but it's the range on that song. Uh, What's the other song? Um, the horrific Celine Dion one from Titanic. Oh, my heart will go on. Yeah, you think about that. I'm not proud of knowing that. It starts really kind of. And then by the end of it, it's it's on full power. And it's the same kind of dynamic. I, I will say, I mean, Celine Dion music just kills me. It, it, it's <laughs> it's the auditory equivalent of being stuck at your grandparents' house on Sunday afternoon when it's a sunny day outside. <laughs> you know what? That is what the fountains at the Bellagio was tuned to, was My Heart Will Go On. Oh, no. Well, and you know what? I know the, a little bit of the backstory of that song. And apparently her singing that was... Her second Packer try, at, yeah, second try at doing a demo for the producers of the movie, and she did that as that was the demo quality. That wasn't even, and they, that's the one they kept because it was just so really, yeah, so Celine. Huh. And, I mean, she irritates the crap out of me as a person, but I mean, <laughs> well, she's French. There's well, yeah, but there's no denying that. I mean, the woman's got a voice. Is it one I want to listen to all the time? No, it is not. No, but is it one that can uh, express drama and? 
and and fury and and all, yeah, she does that really well. Would I ever want to see her live? No, I'd sooner be oh. trampled by wild dogs. No, no, absolutely. I, I would rather try and uh, well, I'd rather go back to the hotel I stayed in when I was in Vancouver on the weekend. <laughs> Then the Death Hotel, the Death Hotel. <laughs> then yeah, Cecilia. Even Dion that Mike. picture you sent me looked haunted. It was oh, it was most assuredly haunted. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I checked into my room. I mean, in all seriousness, it actually wasn't a bad place, right? Because Vancouver is becoming a very very expensive place oh, to I know. visit. So I, I got a room for seventy nine dollars in tax, which is the equivalent of twenty dollars anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was it was clean. It was comfortable. No dead hooker under the bed. No dead hookers. That's there a were. Bonus. I could see hookers from my window. <laughs> Um, well, that's just on their brochure as a hotel amenity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's practically a spa service. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, but lady with thigh high boots on street corner. <laughs> but that's my mom, you bastard. <laughs> she's a lovely lady. Yes, she is. But uh, oh, God, I, you, you do it to yourself. I don't even. I don't even know what to say to that. She'll never listen to this. That's <laughs> we're good. We're solid. <laughs> but uh, I walked into the room immediately. I had. The Hail Mary prayer wow. was running through my head. Now, I mean, I went to Catholic school. I went yeah. to, you know, catechism and yeah. so I learned these prayers. Yeah. But I, you know, don't not think not a daily thing for you. No, 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 no. <laughs> me, and, me and virgins typically don't spend a lot of time together <laughs> is what I'm saying. Just like high school. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> now, then I, well, I spent enough time with virgins back then <laughs> hanging out in the library. But that's another story for another time. It is. So I walked into the hotel room. And immediately, yeah, I just, uh, running through my head is, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is over the Wow. I thought, what, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. But I, I just kind of start unpacking. Walk into the bathroom to put my, my contact stuff down and by the sink. Immediately I get dizzy. Just boom. Whoa. I, and it's like, no matter where I look, I'm just, I'm dizzy. I'm just, it's, it's. Disorienting. It's disorienting. Yeah. Like a feeling yeah. of presence. Yeah. And I've come to identify that with a feeling of presence. Mm -hmm. That or I'm getting diabetes. Well, one of the, one of the one two. Of the two. <laughs> But I realized what was going on. I realized why I was getting this this compulsion to this prayer. I, I mean, I, okay, I don't know why, but I assume it's connected with his presence. Yeah. So I said, look, if you are capable of understanding me, you, you can hang out. You can stay, but you got to back off a bit. Yeah. Because I got to be able to function. I got to yeah. be able to sleep. And it did. Wow. It And I had uh, two great sleeps there. Well, both of the stories we do on the ghost tours involving old kind of skeezy hotels, not that that's where you were. Um, oh, oh, no, I was. <laughs> but they both involve the bathroom where people will go in the bathroom, look to see what kind of free shit they're getting, and then look at the mirror and there's a woman standing behind them and she's looking over your shoulder, but not at you. She's looking at something else and you spin around to look at her and she's gone. Right. But the theory is, of course, that she was murdered in the room. But there's a couple of them and they both happen in bathrooms. The strongest thing that ever happened to me in a hotel, and I mean with a ghost, was- uh, Goes back to Vegas. <laughs> no, I was actually boots. up in Comox and the I was with my wife, Margaret, and our son, who was about four or five at the time. And I had to speak at a church up there. So we were there overnight and the hotel motel, let's be real, the motel owner saw we were family and said, oh, I'm going to give you the, the big room with the suite with the living room and the two bedrooms, which and, is- And all the paintings with the eyes that followed <laughs> Well, it may as well have been. We walked in there, we threw down our stuff, we went and got dinner, came back, it was time to go to bed. We put Jansen in the one room, we were in the other room, but there was something in there and it was very, very strong in the living room kind of kitchenette area. And I just sort of went straight to the bedroom, laid down. And then all night, and I mean literally all night, I was not left alone. I, I had, at one point I went into Jansen's room and tried to sleep in there, wouldn't leave me alone. It was less because I think our son was there. I went in the living room and thought maybe I can 
just power through it. I'll sleep on the couch there. Nope. Didn't even last 10 minutes. Back in with my poor, long-suffering wife. And I just literally bounced around the entire night. The next morning when I woke up, I said to her, she said, how are you doing? And I said, well, not great. I, I hardly got any sleep. And she said, are you either a... Like something is really oh, wrong with wow. this place. Yeah. So we just, we left at like 5.30 in the morning. Holy smokes. Because it was so oppressive and dark. And it was physically dark, but it was also just really heavy. And then I had to go and speak at a church and be all upbeat and perky. So that was super fun. So good news, guys. All this crap we're talking, it's real. <laughs> I know that. Because I was dogged by the dead all last night. It, it definitely felt like that. And it felt like something... Bad news, Jesus didn't come to help me, so <laughs> that guy. Well, I just, I think it was someone or, or something that never was able to get out of there and was quite angry with the fact that we were there, like, happy little family. I don't, right. I don't think it like that at all. Huh. So when you say it bothered you, what, what was your sensation? Just like someone was watching me, I, I felt all prickly. I get it in my chest, I get very tight. My chest gets very tight, I feel it go up my neck, and it was just constant constant it wouldn't let me sleep it was almost like being physically prodded yeah it was awful and you know we've been talking about country music and uh we would often play when i was in a band which we won't talk about oh um, but we will oh but we won't oh um, but we will that we would go into a lot of community halls and theaters and often we were the only ones in there for the first hour or so and it definitely felt like there was something else i actually really like country music i, I talk a lot of shit about country music because yeah. a lot of the modern stuff is garbage <laughs> Hot, hot garbage. Said the 70-year-old man. <laughs> Kids nowadays. Kids, get off my lawn. There was actually a whole section on the interview I took out where in which I, I encourage Matt to go check out the music of Hank Williams III. Right. Because I think he's amazing. Oh, you played some of that for me. That was amazing. Oh, he's, he's totally different. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. So I a few years ago, this would be about, I guess, about seven, eight years ago now. I almost had my own country music radio show. Very cool. Yeah. I'm I, sure that brought in the ladies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just like everything I do. <laughs> uh, well, I'm married now. I can't bring in the ladies. But, you no. know. But, uh, no, I can't. Man. Just, uh, <laughs> my wife doesn't listen to this show. Send nudies to ghoststoryguys.gmail.com. Okay, okay, I will not be constrained. <laughs> Anyways. So, yeah. No, I, I almost had this, this country music radio show uh, up at the campus radio station. Because if you volunteer there enough and you pitch them a show and you prove that you're not a moron, right. you can get a show. And actually, judging from some of the shows on there, <laughs> the proving you're a moron thing, not a moron thing, <laughs> not necessarily a deal breaker. <laughs> I was very close to, to having the show and then I, I got into a, a clash of personalities with the new volunteer coordinator. I'm shocked. I know. I know. You wouldn't think that. I'm such no. a, so easy to get along with. <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it never came to fruition. Of course, you have... An entire album of country music <laughs> yeah. that I could have played on that show. <laughs> I and I was in a band. There were two more albums. Really? Yes, that I did backup vocals for. We were we, the biggest exciting thing for me was we were in a real life recording studio, and we had to be up by four because that night Blue Rodeo was coming in to record. Oh, sweet! That was so you, cool. You got bumped for Blue Rodeo. Got bumped for Blue Rodeo. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, and we did a lot of shows, um, small towns. We'd do a lot of rodeos, and then because we had like this country gospel bent kind of thing, we'd also do we go into the Edmonton Young Offender Center, um, into different prisons and stuff like that. So that was like a dating thing. Yeah. No, no, that was more of a Jesus loves you thing. Oh, uh, I see. But uh, no, it was great. I mean, I learned so much in those two years. I was with the band and touring around. 
we'd hop on a bus and, and tour around for six weeks. And yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. Do I miss it? No, I do not. I like <laughs> well, my own bed. Your music career will be starting up again shortly. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. Oh, wow. I'm so excited. You can find Ian's album, Aware of Wonder. <laughs> On Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Tidal, uh, YouTube, and really anywhere you might think of to look for music. Uh, Weird, obscure music. It just popped up. <laughs> some some handsome invisible force who's into public shaming. Well, I know it's in public encouragement. In public encouragement. Public encouragement. Yeah. yeah. But not like those public websites I look at. <laughs> My friend looks at it. Yeah, your friend. You yeah. heard. Yeah, I heard. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you top, know. Top people have suggested You this. never know. Maybe we'll uh, launch some original music on our podcast. We can do some. That would be amazing. Weird. We should absolutely do this. Ghostly kinds of things. Yeah. And before we get, before we, we go out here, I, I got to say, I think the same motorcycle has gone past <laughs> three goddamn times. In our secluded mountain cabin. You know, man, <laughs> does he not realize I am trying to craft a narrative here <laughs> this because we're just goddamn pure. need for speed nonsense <laughs> pure artists that's oh. what we are our so, souls are our secluded mountain room it could be an atv oh yeah yeah here on the edge of dreams there's I'm, a couple goddamn albertans <laughs> booting around in their atvs exactly as if it's not bad enough when i did that interview with matt i had a goddamn semi truck idling outside the whole time well it took me ages to clean that up because otherwise you just hear whenever i open my mic <laughs> people are like what kind of vibrators <laughs> yeah 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 it's the vibrating bed here in the cabin <laughs> yeah. you go through a lot of quarters god almighty <laughs> all right folks thanks for listening and uh course we'll be back to you in two weeks we may have another guest on that episode we don't cool. know for sure yet so we won't we won't announce that but uh we're gonna fade out today to some wonderful wonderful music please, courtesy please no of our great friend ian please here don't do this oh yeah so it's uh this song is called i know the lord <laughs> I hate and you. Uh, <laughs> the lord the lord the lord has a hold on <laughs> us and uh until we talk to you again he's gonna have a hold on you too bye folks
I hate you so much. I hope you get hit by a bus <laughs> and dragged. Well, then you're going to have to edit this thing on your own. Then you're really boned, aren't you? <laughs> That's true. <laughs>